0: Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director, Cooper Banks. It may go as rather underappreciated local news, but rest assured, it is a story of critical importance for those who seek prosperity in Peoria and in central Illinois. Fifteen million federal dollars in bipartisan infrastructure spending now slated to help with construction of a badly needed new aircraft control tower at General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. I got the chance to speak with Peoria Director of Airports, Gene Olson, to learn more about it. So, um, announcement of this infrastructure bill grant that's coming in for much, to, to say the word much needed might even be an understatement but much-needed upgrades at the flight control tower at the airport there. Gene, your initial reaction to the news?
1: Uh, it's, it's huge relief. Um, I mean, if you looked at a list of, of challenges and, and threats facing the airport, the control tower was probably the biggest one because if, if you know, the control tower was not going to last forever, we were patching things together, and trying to keep the building in in operation, um, but you know even even if we were able to patch it together and keep it in operation, it doesn't meet today's standards. The the new tower is going to be almost in the sa- same location. It's going to be just a little bit east of the old tower, and it's going to be almost 40 feet taller, um, or actually almost 50 feet taller. So. Mm. Um, you know, the current building doesn't meet any standards. There are instruments that are, you know, weather uh, readouts that are supposed to be in that tower that are not there because there's nowhere to mount the instrument heads. Um, so there's, uh, you know, the whole building, none of it is ADA compliant because ADA didn't exist in 1959. Mm. Um the, I, the, so
0: I, I the just, litany. Uh, yeah, you, there, you could go on for a whole day. I won't make you go on for right. a whole day about <laughs> all this stuff. I, I think we've got plenty there. I, 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 the other thing, I guess, is just the idea that, like, okay, so folks would understand it's an old facility that, they, but they they got to understand this is the flight control tower,
1: y'all. Right. What is this? The, the what does this really mean? Remember, yeah. If if this tower goes out of operation then airline service goes away from Peoria. Uh and then we, we would be a very large and overbuilt general aviation airport. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the control tower is critical. Um there are a few I, I did I actually counted this up. There are a few airports in the United States that have airline service that um that that don't have control towers. Um but, but, when you look at the ones that are in our category of of you know primary category, which means they have more than ten thousand airline passengers a year, mm-hmm. if you look at the ones of those that don't have towers, they have an average population of something like nineteen thousand. Um, so there's no community our size in the United States that has no control tower that does have the level of air service that we have. so, the tower goes away, the airlines go away. It's as simple as that. And and this $15 million grant um, gets us started on construction and keeps us in that game.
0: All right. Um, I think the other thing, it's just, you know, it's a word to the other part of this that is also, of course, important is ensuring uh, safety for the folks who are flying. You know, what does it mean for the folks who are going to be traveling in and out of Peoria through the airport. More safety, yes? More assurance. Yeah. It,
1: yeah. It, well, it maintains the level of safety that the control tower currently provides. You know, um, the I used to work at an airport where the tower would close in the middle of the night and we'd be out there doing snow removal, and you had to look over your shoulder an awful lot. To make sure that an airplane wasn't going to land on top of you mm-hmm. um, we don't have that worry here because we have the control tower and the controllers you still keep your eyes open but the controllers are really helping you do that um, and so they're keeping the airplane separated uh, they're making sure that uh, you know when the airplanes several of them trying to come in at the same time they get them all sorted out and lined up they're helping the pilots keep separated from other airplanes
0: um, i guess you know that's the next thing would be, okay, timeline, when are we moving dirt, when are we building a structure, when are we done? Do we know all that yet?
1: N- not in detail. Um, you know, in, in the, the um, kind of estimating how long this project would take, uh, you're looking at a multi-year construction project. I'm, you know, I compare it to when we built the new terminal building. Uh, we started that in 2008, and the building opened in 2011. Mm-hmm. The control tower is not as big as as the terminal building, but it's probably every bit as complicated. Um, okay. And so we're looking at a multi-year construction period. There's going to be a period of time uh, where we have some paperwork and administrative things that we have to do. You know, the design for this tower was completed in 2016. Okay, so
0: that was going to be my first question. It's like. Do we have the design work done, or is this just like, okay, we know we're going to get the money. Let's start the design work. So we've got the is the concept done.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah, we, we started uh, working on this, like, almost as soon as I came here in 2009. Yeah. Uh, in 2012, we went to the FAA Tech Center in Atlantic City. Um, they built a computer model of the, er, of the airport, and then you're sitting in there, and it I mean, it literally feels like you're sitting in the control tower.
2: Mm.
1: I had to close my eyes when they moved around because I would get (laughs) motion. So we did that in 2012. Uh, We started in, I think, 2013 working on the design. That was completed in 2016. And then um, because the design is more than a year old, we have to do what they call a building code review. Uh, so you have to go in and re-examine the design. You know, have an architect re-examine the design to make sure that the building code hasn't changed in a significant way that would impact your design. Um, sure. So that's probably a few months of, worth of work. Um, we have to do some environmental documentation, and so I'm thinking we will not be ready for breaking ground until maybe till the spring. Um, okay. But. Uh, you know we're certainly well that's that's ready even to,
0: sooner than i might have expected so yeah good good
1: yeah i mean we want to we want to get this project uh underway as quickly as possible um, and and like i said we've done a lot of the preliminary work we've actually started on some of the work for the environmental documentation uh we've we've started on that stuff already too so um, but it, you're you're looking at at least a couple of years to uh to build the structure and then um, the FAA has to move all their equipment into it and then operate it for a period of time. They call that a commissioning period.
2: Mm.
1: And it's my understanding that that takes about a year uh, so that you're making sure all the systems in the building are working and all the communications gear, you know, the radios and, and radar scopes and all that stuff, that all that's still working uh, before you do the cutover from the old building to the new building. Um What what, what happens to
0: the old building after the cutover is done? I'll go ahead and
1: ask. Uh, It'll be demolished. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it'll be demolished. And then the original plan was, uh, you know, rental car parking is right in the middle of the main parking lot. Um, But if you walk through the building, there's a sign that tells you to go out the east door. Well, that's because the original plan was to have rental car parking out that east door where the control tower is. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, We'll, we'll, we've got some time to figure out if that's still going to happen, but it looks like that probably will be at least the initial uh, direction we're going to go.
0: Okay. Cool. All right. Well, Gene, I think that's everything I was curious about. Is there anything else that's important for us to include in this, this really key update here today?
1: Gosh, can't think. I can't think of anything. Um, okay. you know, we're, we're really excited and, and ready to get to go, you know, ready to get moving. Um, and uh, like I said, this this is hope for us. Uh, whereas, you know, we don't we can we can um, we see an end to the time when we're going to have to keep bandaid, you know, applying Band-Aids to the building.
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I'm um, glad to see that everybody around who who knows uh, and has seen is cheering right along with you, Gene. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Happy
1: to do it. Thank you. All righty.
0: Of course, it's worth noting this success can be credited to years of hard work from Gene and his team at the airports. It's not so much a goodbye, more of a see you later. Catching up with now former Peoria County Sheriff Brian Asbell as he hands the reins to a long-trusted lieutenant who won the recent primary and presumably will run unopposed in the November elections. That's where my conversation with Asbell began earlier this week. I suppose I would start by asking what level of confidence is it that you have uh, in Captain and Under Sheriff Chris Watkins? You seem to uh, have kind of picked him as your guide. Talk to me more about that.
3: Yeah,
4: I've I've known Chris his whole career, and interestingly enough, his background is very familiar or similar to mine. Um, both local boys, we did the military, um, I'm Army, he's Air Force, so we can make the jokes about that. But Chris Chris started in the jail. He started as a correctional officer, and he, he went to patrol. Then he went into investigations. He was in Meg, um, which is undercover narcotics, um, lieutenant, detective lieutenant, uh, courthouse uh, supervisor, and, and ultimately his last spot before becoming sheriff. He was in charge of all patrol and, and investigations as, as a captain, as one of my under sheriffs. And um, not to say anything against anyone else that ran for this office, but we had that that relationship where I it was a friendship, but it was a mentorship too over the years. And um, I, I was confident with his abilities. And and he's not just like me though. That's that's the best piece where he's. He's got his own ideas. He has got his. Um, he has a lot more energy, energy than me at this time. Um, but he also knows what he's getting into. Um, sitting in at least the sheriff's office with all the undersheriffs over the past three
1: years mm-hmm.
4: where we, we had all these hardships. If, if, if you have a job you love, um, but then we had just one incident after another after COVID started. And that was no fault of anyone. The whole world went through this and at different levels and it was just one forest fire after another forest fire trying to manage on an emergency basis. Um I remember one of my first press conferences back in, you know, March of twenty when when COVID was first starting and, and I said, My life is now about making the best bad decision every day. Mm. And he he was able to see this, and the story I'm trying to say there. At least Chris knows, walking in, the hardships that are already inert when when coming into this office. Um, I would so ask. It's not going to be
0: kind of in that right. same vein. Um, is and and you've taken us down a road that I was interested to explore too about kind of the things that you think about when you leave. Right, it's not even just legacy that you think about. It's the things left undone, unaddressed, the things that would still make you kind of worry. Leaving the office, you're like, "Oh, I'm not going to have any say over that anymore, or that anymore." What are some of those
4: things? I don't know if it's not that I would have say. Um, it's always been a group think here, um, and everyone's opinions was was valid and, and welcomed. I think the one thing I'll miss, though, is I, I spent a lot of my career, even before I was sheriff and jail superintendent, um, working on and building on programs to combat recidivism, mm. reentry, uh, a lot of job force programs, uh, helping ex-offenders get their life back in order. I, I've said from day one, the number one influencer to reduce crime is employment.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: And I I just don't know how all this will play out in relation to uh, the no-cash bond, um, other aspects of the Safety Act that's going to come in and play January 1st. Let's look at it. When when people come to the jail now and they're here on a no-cash bail program, what's the likelihood that they're going home? Or are they going to go be transferred to IDOC? Are you going to invest a lot of time and money and resources into programs where, quite literally, the most of the population you're dealing with aren't going back to the community? And do you, you have to go ahead. How you do reentry and and move from more of a internal model to an external model?
0: Um, Explain that a little bit more because I think there are few out listening who understand fully about what the impact of these changes might really be as you see them, because it's obviously something that uh, you find perhaps a little bit concerning here.
2: Yeah,
4: well, there's there's more questions than answers relative to, to the no cash bill provisions, and like I said, I, I've always I've always been one about reform. I was always one about let's try something different. What we have been doing wasn't working. However, it was more so the timeline with a lot of these things that have been imposed. Mm-hmm. and we don't have the infrastructure in place for the behavior health model that that they, they want to go and I think that's where it should be. I've said too many times you're asking police officers to wear too many hats. And, and the jail all jails across the state and nation have become de facto mental health centers. Mm. So what happens when you switch this this flip this switch and it's, it's so sudden and you don't have the other systems or infrastructure in place. And
0: I think the thing I wanted to shift to to get, Brian is for you, I guess if you had something that you wanted to pass along, to uh, peoria county elected leaders as kind of like a parting hey let's make sure that we address this won't you won't you try to make this easier on chris in this way won't you what you know what what are some of those kinds of things that you might like to pass along
4: i want to leave on a high note so i'll be careful what i say Um, (laughs) i get it (laughs) yeah, yeah well you know the best part of of my career and the best part of my career has been the journey and building relationships and building friendships that I'll have forever. And these last two years have been outliers. And, and we've put a lot of blame. And we liked, we're, we live in the world where we like to push blame on someone else when everything's crashing in. Mm. And I felt myself falling into that same category, too, where you, you just get this sense of, of anger and frustration. And that was Part of my decision making too it's time for fresh blood to get in here mm. um, and have that that energy enthusiasm to take it to the next level uh, but it's all about it's about respect and 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 listening to your subject matter experts when you have a question about criminal justice or, or the jail or, or law enforcement. Or if you're taxes at the treasurer, or, or bond papers at the clerk's office, listen to the ones that that, that work in this. They, they know so much, mm. and, and they can come up with solutions that can assist with problems. And and sometimes it's this to be patient with decision making, and, and and you know don't jump the gun and do something very rash that that has long term predictable. Collateral damage consequences, and again, I, I hate to use the last two years as an example because this has been, you know, this one issue after another, and this is something no one predicted. Right. Um, this just overnight, you you went from COVID to social unrest to to staffing to a, a major legislative pass with House Bill thirty six fifty three, which mm-hmm. turned into the Safety Act. And, and that's when failure happens.
0: Yeah. Then, then our problems outrun our, any of our imagined yeah. solutions. And it becomes personal. And it's,
4: yeah. it's, it's both sides. It's just a system. And so there, there's a lot of work to do, but there's also being in a political position. I, I, I have a lot of respect for people that put themselves out there. It's, it takes a toll on you and your family. Um, I, there's, there's next chapters. I, I see uh, a purpose for me. Um, and there's a lot to work to do right now, even with the, the new legislation.
0: Um, All right. Well, the, uh, the uh, hard and fast reporter in me would then follow up and ask you if you intend to run for state office.
2: <laughs>
4: oh, my, I got a line for that, but I'll, I'll say this: an enthusiastic no. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> Brian, okay. I appreciate you taking the time with me today. Illinois State Police and the state's attorney general came out to the podium this past week announcing what could be seen as a rather controversial initiative, although many law enforcement leaders are behind it. A new online gun tracking program, which they say is designed to curb gun crime and help with investigations. Attorney General Kwame Raoul and ISP Director Brandon Kelly offered details on Thursday.
3: Well, good morning. Um, thank you all for being here. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking our partners um, um, who are here today, uh, of course, uh, State Police Director Brennan Kelly, uh, Chief Mitchell Davis, past president of the uh, Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police, and uh, Hazel Chris, uh Police Chief uh, Leo Schmitz from Cook County Sheriff's Office. Dan Katowski, my uh, former colleague in the legislation, legislature and executive director of kids, uh, above all. Um, Kim Smith, director of programs at the University of Chicago Crime Lab. Um, Casey Atayero, chief external affairs officer at the Joyce Foundation. Uh, and Valerie Burgess from Moms Demand Action. Um, three and a half years ago, when I uh, took home as Attorney General, one of my priorities was to try to work comprehensively, uh, notwithstanding limited uh, uh, prosecutorial jurisdiction on reducing uh, gun violence. Uh, we've made uh, contributions by stepping in sometimes for local prosecutors to, prosecute murders, armed robberies, gun trafficking cases. We've expanded our crime victims services to better respond to uh, gun violence survivors. Uh, We have enthusiastically uh, accepted a new responsibility given to us by the legislature to partner with the Illinois State Police on prosecuting gun-related crimes on our state roadways. Uh, We've partnered with Secret Secret Service's National Threat Assessment Center on conducting trainings to help prevent mass shootings in schools, uh, places of worships, and other places of uh, mass gathering. And we've trained on our state's red flag law. But one of the top priorities coming into the office for me was to try to develop a state-of-the-art crime gun tracing platform because it's one of the most effective ways to investigate gun trafficking and straw purchasing. Tracing guns recovered after they are used in a crime can help identify the purchaser, but also co-conspirators and witnesses. On top of that, crime gun tracing can provide a better look at trends and patterns of how guns are finding their ways into the hands of people we know will do bad with them. While this critical data is maintained by uh, the ATF and available to law enforcement agencies, the process for these uh, law enforcement agencies is, uh, is really onerous to go through these records. For instance, federal law prevents crime gun records from being digitized, meaning records are still stored in paper form instead of being able to search and analyze data immediately law enforcement agencies that request tracing data must sort through through paper records and spreadsheets to get basic information on the source of crime guns this is often a valuable time loss so we worked in collaboration with every town for gun safety and we hired data scientists uh, uh, some consultants to help us develop a system that will modernize and simplify the process of analyzing crime gun traces for Illinois law enforcement agencies. The system will be made available through the Illinois State Police along with other tools that they have developed to help law enforcement agencies solve gun crimes. Crime Gun Connect will allow law enforcement agencies in Illinois to access critical crime gun trace records more efficiently than ever before. This platform will allow law enforcement agencies to crack down on illegal gun trafficking by analyzing firearms recovered uh, when they are used in a crime. Crime Gun Connect is a tool for law enforcement uh, that is informed by law enforcement. In developing the platform, we incorporated feedback that we received in a prior version of a tracing tracing tool. Crime Gun Connect contains over 100,000 crime gun trace records from approximately 200 law enforcement agencies in Illinois dating back to 2009. The platform also incorporates sophisticated mapping technology as well as an algorithm that helps identify the individuals most likely involved in trafficking. In short, Crime Gun Connect will take trace records that have always been paper-based and make them available in a format that allows searching, sorting, and filtering in a quick manner. While we cannot show you a Crime Gun Connect itself in sort of live form, I'm going to bring up real quick, Adam Braun, my executive deputy, uh, to do a quick demonstration so that you can get a sense uh, of the data uh, that law enforcement can, can, can access. Uh,
5: thank you, uh, Attorney General Raul. Um, as the Attorney General mentioned, shortly after taking office, he directed us to establish a crime gun tracing portal. And the goal in creating this portal was to close a gap created through the advocacy efforts Um, of groups such as the NRA, they've been able to successfully attach riders to federal appropriations bills that prevent the ATF from maintaining these records in a digital format. The records are literally kept on paper and stored at a facility in West Virginia. As a result, there is no comprehensive electronic database available to law enforcement when they want to search the provenance of a gun used in the commission of a crime. So as the Attorney General stated, we've developed Crime Gun Connect to address that problem. The system contains uh, over 100,000 crime gun trace records from nearly 200 Illinois law enforcement agencies dating back to 2009. Um, And though the ATF um, maintains these records on paper, there is uh, the ability to uh, request and receive uh, crime gun trace records electronically. And agencies can further opt into something called collective data sharing. And when they do so, they share their records with other law enforcement agencies in the state. And that's how we've built this system. As you can see uh, on the monitor, we've built a system that allows law enforcement to search for information the same way we all Google information every day. Rather than sorting through piles and piles of paper records, law enforcement can enter basic information into the search box to immediately get records relevant to their investigation. The platform also incorporates sophisticated mapping technology. While uh, the recovery data that uh, populates the system is limited to the state of Illinois, we're able to use the system to build a nationwide picture as to the source of crime guns that are used in the Commission of Crimes in Illinois. The system also includes uh, sophisticated filtering options and algorithms that elevate those firearms most likely to have been trafficked or uh, the result of straw purchasing. As you can see here, the system will allow law enforcement to filter by geographic range, types of crime, time to crime, and certain indicators that we know to be likely uh, indicia of trafficking and straw purchasing.
0: Again, that- online gun tracking program announced to help try and curb gun crime an executive order protecting access to abortions across the country and also some political messaging ahead of the midterms here's what president joe biden had to say on friday try this strange 10 second technique tonight to reverse type 2 diabetes
6: most people Now, with the Vice President, Secretary Becerra, and uh, Deputy Attorney General Monaco, I want to talk about an executive order I'm signing to protect reproductive rights of women in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's terrible, extreme, and I think so totally wrongheaded decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. In both formalized actions I announced uh, right after the the decision, as well as adding new measures today, let's be clear about something from the very start. This was not a decision driven by the Constitution. Let me say it again. This was not a decision driven by the Constitution. And despite what those justices, the majority said, this was not a decision driven by history. You've all probably had a chance to read the decisions and the dissent. The majority rattles off laws from the 19th century to support the idea that Roe was was a historic anomaly because states outlawed abortion in the 1880s toward the end. But that's just wrong. The truth is, today's Supreme Court majority, that is playing fast and loose with the facts, even 150 years ago, the common law and many state laws did not criminalize abortion early in pregnancy, which is very similar to the viability line drawn by Roe. But the Dobbs majority ignores that fact. And the Dobbs majority ignores that many laws are enacted to protect women at the time when they were dying from unsafe abortions. This is the horrific reality that Rose sought to end. The practice of medicine should not, should not be frozen in the 19th century. So, what happened? The dissenting opinion says as clear as you can possibly say it. And here's the quote. Neither law nor facts nor attitudes have provided any new reason to reach a different result than Roe and Casey did. And that has changed, excuse me, all that's changed is this court, end of quote. All that's changed is this court. <clears throat> that wasn't about the Constitution or the law. It was about a deep, long seeding antipathy toward Roe and the broader right to privacy. As the Justice wrote in their dissent, and I quote, the majority has overruled Roe and Casey for one and only one reason, because it has always despised them, and now it has the votes to discard them, end of quote. So what we're witnessing wasn't a constitutional judgment. It was an exercise in raw political power. On the day the Dobbs decision came down, I immediately announced what I would do. But I also made it clear, based on the reasoning of the court, there is no constitutional right to choose. Only the way, the only way to fulfill and restore that right for women in this country is by voting, by exercising the power at the ballot box. Let me explain. We need two additional pro-choice senators and a pro-choice House to codify Roe as federal law. Your vote can make that a reality. I know it's frustrating. And it made a lot of people very angry. But the truth is this, and it's not just me saying it, it's what the court said. When you read the decision, the court has made clear it will not protect the rights of women. Period. Period. After having made the decision based on a reading of a document that was frozen in time in the 1860s, when women didn't even have the right to vote, the court now, now, practically dares the women of America to go to the ballot box and restore the very rights they've just taken away. One of the most extraordinary parts of the decision, in my view, is the majority rights, and I quote, women, it's a quote now from the majority, women are not without electoral or political power it is noteworthy that the percentage of women who register to vote and cast a ballot is consistently higher than the percentage of the men who do so, end of quote. Repeat the line. Women are not without electoral and or political, or, or maybe precise not and or, or political power. That's another saying that you, the women of America, can determine the outcome of this issue. I don't think the court or for that matter the republicans who for decades have pushed the extreme agenda have a clue about the power of american women but they're about to find out in my view it's my hope and strong belief that women will in fact turn out in record numbers to reclaim the rights that have taken from them by the court and let me be clear while i wish it had not come to this this is the fastest route available I'm just stating a basic fundamental notion. The fastest way to restore Roe Roe, is to pass a national law codifying Roe, which I will sign immediately upon its passage at my desk. And we can't wait. Extreme Republican governors, extreme Republican state legislators, and Republican extremists in the Congress overall, all of them have not only fought to take away the right, our rights, but they're now determined to go as far as they can. Now the most extreme Republican governors and state legislatures have taken the court's decision as a green light to impose some of the harshest and most restrictive laws seen in this country in a long time. These are the laws that not only put women's lives at risk, these are the laws that will cost lives. What we're witnessing is a giant step backwards in much of our country. Already, the bans are in effect in 13 states. 12 additional states are likely to ban choice in the next coming, in the coming weeks. And in a number of these states, the laws are so extreme, they've raised the threat of criminal penalties for doctors and health care providers. They're so extreme that many don't allow for exceptions, even for rape or incest. Let me say it again. Some of the states don't allow for exceptions for rape or incest. This isn't some imagined horror. It's already happening. Just last week, it was reported. And she was forced to have to travel out of the state to Indiana to seek to terminate the presidency and maybe save her life. That's last part is my judgment. Court's decision has already been received by Republicans in Congress as a green light to go further and pass a national ban. A national ban. Remember what they're saying. They're saying there's no right to privacy, so therefore it's not protected by the Constitution. So it's left up to the states and the Congress what they want to do. And now my Republican friends are talking about getting the Congress to pass a national ban in the extreme positions that they're taking in some of these states. That will mean the right to choose. will be illegal nationwide if, in fact, they succeed. Let me tell you something. As long as I'm president, it won't happen, because I'll veto it. So the choice is clear. If you want to change the circumstance for women and even little girls in this country, please go out and vote. When tens of millions of women vote this year, they won't be alone. Millions and millions of men We'll be taking up the fight alongside them to restore the right to choose and the broader right to privacy in this nation, which they denied existed. In the challenge from the court to the American women and men, this is a nation. The challenge is go out and vote. Well, for God's sake, there's an election in November. Vote, 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 vote. Consider the challenge accepted, court. But in the meantime, I'm signing this important executive order. I'm asking the Justice Department that, much like they did in the civil rights era, to do something, do everything in their power to protect these women seeking to invoke their rights. In states where clinics are still open, to protect them from intimidation. To protect the right of women to travel from a state that prohibits seeking the medical attention that she needs to a state to provide that care protect the woman's right to FDA-approved, the Federal Drug Administration-approved medication that's been available for over 20 years, the executive order provides safeguards to access care. A patient comes into an emergency room in any state in the union. She's expressing and experiencing life-threatening miscarriage. But the doctor is going to be so concerned about being criminalized for treating her the delay treatment to call the hospital lawyer who's concerned the hospital would be penalized if the doctor provides a life-saving care. It's outrageous. I don't care what your position is. It's outrageous and it's dangerous. Of course, balancing
0: all of that with the insistence from Republican politicians, conservative thought leaders that those states which ban abortion are unlikely to crack down hard on pregnant women who seek it. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.